All right, Ephesians chapter 1. We are in our fourth part of this series entitled Chosen in Christ. And the subtitle today is God's God's Divine Sovereign Rights as God. We've been reading this text here in Ephesians 1 for our introduction. We're going to do that again today, and we'll we'll dig more into this text sometime. And there there are several Texas te- Texas texts that we've been looking at that we're going to revisit and go deeper into, uh, especially in the introduction. We we bounced around did a bunch of reading of different texts. We're gonna uh, I promise get into some and camp out and you know go in a little bit more detail, look at some words, do some word studies and stuff. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints that are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ, according to as he hath chosen us in him, speaking of Christ, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of and the glory of his grace in which he has made us accepted in the beloved in Christ, in other words. As I said, this is our fourth message, and the the first one was just a general uh, introduction to talk about what we were going to be talking about, a preview. The second was a general overview of the attributes of God, talking about how they're connected to uh, unconditional election, And we mentioned that we will probably spend most of our time on the sovereignty of God, and that's what we're looking at today. Last week, we looked at um, the biblical fact that God chose some people to save. We brought up the popular idea, very popular idea among religious people who, who don't know their Bibles, that they assume that God just, he chose everybody. And that matches the common assumption that God wants to save everybody, that God loves everybody. Those things match. So it shouldn't be a surprise that they believe that God just saved, you know, he's chosen everyone to save. We looked at a few uh, verses last week that easily disproved that he chose everybody. We're going to look deeper into that and uh, further into it and show actually a specific group of people toward the end of the series that he has not chosen and he has a specific place set aside for them also. And there are also means involved in that supposed negative side of that. Uh, We might even look at a couple verses today if we get get time on that point. Of course, thinking that God has chosen everybody and thinking that God has set his love on everybody and thinking that God wants to save everybody, automatically it goes to the idea of, well, Jesus died for everybody. And it's up to you to make this choice with your free will to appropriate that universal gift for all people and make it work by your decision. We brought up the conundrum that some get in when they say that God actually only chose some, but yet at the same time, he still loves all, and he wants to save all. And this is a popular idea. 
And um, even among those that claim to believe what we believe, they always say in, in some sense we can say God loves all. In some sense we can say that Christ died for all. In some sense we can say that God desires the salvation of all, but we will spend extra time disproving that from the scripture. So all, all this must go together. I remember the very first time I had exposure to, seriously sat down and, and taught by people, uh, first night at seminary in uh, 1982. Uh, I mentioned this to you guys before. I still have a few copies of it. It was a, They passed out an article by Jimmy Swaggart just so they can show the heir of Jimmy Swaggart who was against all five points of the doctrines of grace. And in that article, I do remember even him saying these five doctrinal heads, they, they must either stand or fall together. And he, of course, rejected all five. People, uh, you know, he agreed with the Armenian, semi-Pelagian, uh, Pelagian, and, and even the Catholic view. So we'll we'll dig into that. But I wanted to get more specific because not just talking about the five points. I'm talking about this idea here of if God, you would think that if God chose all people, that would have to mean that He loved all people. And that he would have that would have to mean that he desired all people's salvation, and he would have to put Christ in there for all people in reference to his death. I mean, anything else is just illogical, irrational, insane to say otherwise. No matter what side you fall on, really. So nowhere in the Word of God does it says that that God chose everybody. It doesn't say that. Even the Old Testament pattern. Look at this a little bit later, how that he set apart Israel to do certain things with, and he chose that nation in the Old Covenant. Even there, you see, the rest of the people were, were not in that. So that was our first you know, snapshot of this thing is restrictive. And um, even all these, these people that had problems with Christ as, as you see them arguing against Christ in, the, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those Jewish people understood election. They were proud of election. There was no questioning election. But they were still stuck on this idea of we're elect because we're Jews. So as a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, Christ, of course, was talking to one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, and he started to straighten this thing out. He said, God loves the world. And when he said that, he's referring to the non-Jews. And we'll look at that verse as we go along too. But you start to see that introduction of the Gentiles or the nations or the heathen or the world coming in to part of salvation. And of course, this crept in on their idea of exclusiveness of no salvation is, is only for us Jews. So it struck at the root of their national bloodline pride and uh, they had a hard time with it and uh, that's an important thing to know about this transition from old to new covenant <clears throat> so if God has set his affection on someone he will choose that someone and that someone will be saved. No doubt about it. I can think of a verse that covers, covers that. You know, there's several verses that are, that are overlapping. You know, some verses might cover the atonement. Some verses might cover just election. Some verses might cover love. Some verses might cover them all. But John uh, 6.37, you all probably have it memorized. Christ is speaking. This is in the context of uh, feeding 5,000. He says, what is it? I can't think. Just kidding. All, all the Father gives me? Yeah. I forgot just for a second. All that the Father gives me, this is an election. This is in the covenant. We're going to talk about the covenant before the foundation of the world. All that the Father gives me, those elect people, all his sheep, 
you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. This is the group I'm talking about. This is who he was talking about. All that the Father has given me shall come to me by faith. That's the only way you come to Christ. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. They will be secure. They'll be preserved by the effect of his death. Now, what does that imply? That implies there are other people that have not been given to Christ that will not come to Christ. And of course, they're not going to be preserved because they didn't come to Christ and they haven't been given to Christ. And then some would say, but Christ, I agree with all that, but Christ died for them, nevertheless, to give them an opportunity. <laughs> come on now. Uh, the only true, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God is not confused. We have to get a grip on this elementary point. He's not like us. We've, we've, we have plans, and we, we talk about doing different things, and I don't know if any of you out there are human. Anybody? Start to do something and you think, on, I forgot this. And that was one of the main things in your chore that you were doing. God's not that way. This is the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God who doesn't change. He's not a dummy. Right? Us compared to him, we're dummies. We are not all wise, we're not all knowing, we're not all powerful. We change, we forget. But religion, false religion, portrays him to be a dummy, seriously. Some of these things are very, very simple. And, and part of the problem is, uh, some, most people, I think, can't think of more than one thing at a time. Or they've been told one thing and they think they have a grip on it and then Later on, they'll forget and put something else, you know, that doesn't match in there, that's incongruent or inconsistent. And then you point it out. It sometimes has to be pointed out. We have to have things pointed out to us by each other, by the Scripture, by the Spirit. And when we see it, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? But the, some of these people, most of these people, they'll dig in and they'll say, no, 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 no. That, that, that doesn't match what I feel inside. That doesn't match my, as I've gone to the spiritual buffet and picked out God the way I want him to be, it doesn't match the way I've assembled him together. We spoke of the most insane type person who would claim to be a five-pointer, believe the doctrines of grace or the five points or tulip or Calvinism or what do you want to call it, who actually holds to unconditional election. And they still say, but God desires the salvation of all without exception. This is utterly, utterly foolish. It's foolishness. And it's not just a foolish notion in their head. It casts really reproach upon who the true God is. It, it makes God look like somebody like us that can't get his stuff together, can't get his plan together, that's confused, that's maybe... Uh, schizophrenic, uh, it's a lie. At best, it's a lie. And it affects or reflects who God actually is. Um, there was an article going around a, a few days ago, it was this week on um, different social media, and it was talking about the Southern Baptist Convention. I guess they elect a president every now and then, and there's been this uh, supposed struggle for years within the Southern Baptist Convention because of there's some Calvinistic people in the Southern Baptist Convention. And the main group is called the Founders Group or Founders Movement. And um, what they try to teach is the historical roots of the Southern Baptist Convention are Calvinistic. Uh, J.P. Boyce actually has a good systematic theology. Um, that defends what we believe. And it's, it's a textbook, the systematic theology, that they use in their college. And <clears throat> nowadays you have these, these newer Calvinists or sovereign grace people that are just kind of tiptoeing around the tulips, just kind of like messing with theology and 
now it's got to the point where this one guy is running for president and the Armenians are looking at him and saying, oh, we can't have this, this Calvinist guy run. Well, I found out this guy's like a, like a self-admitted three-pointer. He does away with the atonement and the irresistible grace. And uh, there was all this commotion about higher, you know, voting him in. And he said, well, by the way, I believe that Christ died for everybody. I'm thinking he's no different than the Armenian that's trying to get voted in. He's no different. A three-pointer is an Armenian. A four-pointer is an Armenian. You toss out the, the atonement. You've tossed it all out. You've tossed the gospel out. So yeah, that, those are the kinds of things that are going on. And anybody that would just, to them, I guess that would be a five-pointer is a, is a hyper-Calvinist, right? You've heard the accusations. And then the five-pointers who don't believe in common grace and the free offer look at us and say, we're hyper-Calvinists. So we'll cover those things. And, and there'll be a value when we cover them, not just going to be some intellectual exercise. We'll show the connection um, to grace. And again, I want to remind us that this, this series is to be Christ-centered, gospel-focused, and election is part of salvation. It reflects on who God is. It shows who Christ is, Christ having preeminence in election. And we can't forget the gospel connection of what we're teaching here. We're not just toying around. We're not just, uh, you know seeing a lot of cool, neat things of theological that we're expanding our human brain. We say, that's cool. Now we're smart. What do we do with that? That's not the purpose. I'm not going to waste my time doing that. I did that when I was unconverted. So what a person holds to here reflects what they think about what their God looks like. And most have made adjustments so that their, their doctrine, whatever they hold to an election, is not offensive. That is the fear when it comes to this area here of unconditional election and the sovereignty of God. And what does that do? It takes away the offense, which is connected to the cross. It's not divorced from the cross. It's connected to the cross. When, when election and love and the cross are limited to just some people. What that does, and we'll, I want to really spend some time on this later, what this does is it excludes any idea of works. That's the main purpose. You know, when we talk about predestination versus free will, it's about works. It's about whether it's grace or works. And let's talk about that in a, in a gospel connection, not just some, you know, high and lofty conversation where we forget about Christ and the gospel. It's about the glory of God. It's about works. It's whether or not sinners are able to boast or we boast in the cross alone. And then it has to do with, you know, are we glorying in the flesh or are we glorying in, in the cross? And when they trim those things down, they trim down the exclusiveness, and they tr trim down the sovereignty of God, it, it, it leaves room for conditions. It leaves room for many conditions, and we'll see uh, conditional views of election. We'll show where that's very clear that that opens the door up for that. And what does that do? It helps their feelings. So what will stop that? It's just to show God as he shows himself in the Scripture. That's what we intend to do to stop it. And whether it has to do with tradition, feelings, offensiveness, pride, self-righteousness, it doesn't matter. God's going to speak. We're going we're to represent what he says. No matter how much um, persecution we may receive, how much people would just like say, you know, you guys just, you're out of it. Look at us like we have a third eyeball in the middle of our head. You know, you've seen it before. Because these people, by nature, they think it's a given that God loves everybody. And God wants to, that's, that's like elementary, they think. That's, they assume that that's the, the foundation where they start. And it doesn't take much. It only takes a few verses to show some of these elementary points. Like, seriously, check it out. 
most people have not been shown these things. They've not been asked to think for themselves. They've been brought into churches and had their ears tickled by a professional preacher who just wants to keep the money coming in. So we don't decide or judge or discern things by our feelings. We simply believe what God has said about himself in his own word. I want to give you a, a simple uh, English definition of the word sovereign, and then we'll go to the scripture and look at some translations and see what they say. Sovereign means, and this word isn't used very much unless you're studying what we're studying, if you understand uh, the history of uh, political things about our nation being a sovereign nation, or if you're like over in Europe, where you've some of maybe of those people were under sovereign king or prince, might be a little bit more familiarity there. But it's a word that's not used much. Uh, I'd say the general public is ignorant of what the word sovereign means. But it means supreme or highest in power, superior to all others, chief, predominant, greatest, utmost, paramount. That's a general definition of. Sovereign, And I always, when I talk to people in person uh, about this word and about the fact that God is sovereign, I usually talk about the execution of his sovereignty and just say, this just means that God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, to whom he wants, whenever he wants. You know, a verse pops in my head, an easy one. Our God is in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he has pleased. He just does what he wants. Now, the subtitle, uh, you know, does today of the messages has to do with whether or not God has the divine right to do that, to exercise this sovereignty that he has. We're going to ask the question, does he even have it? And we'll look at some of those verses. But once he has it, how, what does he do with it? That is that is the main problem. Um, some would want maybe a sovereign God that would turn over his sovereignty over to them and make them feel comfortable so that they can be sovereign and do things with decisions. But that's not the way God works, and we'll see here in a minute. Now, the English Standard Version uses the word sovereign. I know the word sovereign is not in the King James, not in the modern King James. Um, the only version... That, that I had available to me electronically was the English Standard Version, the ESV. I think maybe the the NET, the NET Bible. Um, uh, Kenny, my cousin, gave me a copy that I had it at the house. I didn't bother to look, but I'm pretty sure they used the word sovereign. But go to Acts chapter four. Let's. I'm going to look at three verses. Two of the verses use the same Greek word. So we're going to see a total of two Greek words in three verses. Acts chapter 4 and verse 24. And I'm going to read directly from the uh, English Standard Version here. Acts 4.24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them. So there is the word sovereign, the, the English translation of the Greek word uh, despotus, which means an absolute ruler, lord, or master. And another verse we're going to use, the third verse will have that same Greek word. Now go to First uh, Timothy chapter 6. And here is another translation of a Greek word into the word sovereign, but it's a different Greek word. Now, verse 13, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and to Jesus Christ, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained, and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I think the King James uses the only potentate, which is, that's probably even a less known, in my opinion, even a less known word than, than sovereign. But there, here this Greek word, and I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation of this. It is um, dumas, dumastes, which kind of sounds like the first one, despotis, but this is dunastis. It just means a ruler of great authority, mighty potentate. Now for the last verse, let's go to Revelation 6. And this is a repeat of that other uh, despotus, Greek word. Revelation 6 and verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? So there are three there that are translated in English, sovereign. Now, I just want to note something here. A lot of times people will uh, take the most popular Bible, which is the King James Version, and say, you guys talk about sovereign and sovereignty. The word's not even in the Bible. Okay, let's say we didn't have an English Standard Version. And it's, English Standard is kind of a newer version anyway. The whole biblical concept and idea of sovereignty, not just with one word, but with sentences and paragraphs and chapters, is there in place in the scripture. It's there. Um, Usually the sovereign grace person would say the word Trinity is not in the Bible, which is a fact. It's not in the Bible. The word, but the concept is there. So that's, that's the idea. A further note about sovereignty or God being sovereign. My position is, and it's not going to surprise you, and I believe it's a biblical position. If a person rejects God's sovereignty, they're really no different than an atheist who claims that there's no God. If you take God's character attribute of sovereignty out from who God is, that attribute of divine sovereignty, if you take that away from God, you've created an idol, an image in your own mind, an idol of the imagination. God without his sovereignty is not God. It's a false God. It's an idol. I believe that people do that. They will they will try to extract that and, and many other attributes. They'll try to take that away from God And they're doing the very same thing that the atheist is doing. As it's mentioned there in Romans 1, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They see something that scares them to death and takes control away from them. And they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know he's sovereign. They just hate it. And it's not just they hate the attribute. They hate God. Scripture already says they hate God. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. Right? And this is part of it. And this will be the case until God reveals himself in the gospel and shows that there is only one way of reconciliation. It is by the blood of Christ, making them after that no longer ashamed of the gospel or ashamed of the sovereignty of God. You know, that subject is is a very controversial subject. 
There are several subjects in the scripture that are controversial, several subjects in the scripture that are offensive. And when those things come up, I think a lot of us know that there is, there's going to be mocking, persecution, if we stick to our guns on who God is. If we retain this doctrine and, and protect it and keep it and guard it, I mean, we glory in it. We don't have a problem with it. We love it. This is who God is. If we do that, if we stick to it, we're going to have a small crowd. We will continue to have a small crowd. No doubt. No doubt about it. You see some of these uh, bigger uh, sovereign grace churches that are just overflowing and they have all their stuff coming in and programs and just giant crowds. If you look close, they don't, they don't talk about the absolute sovereignty of God in all things and how that God makes it a distinction and has a particular people and grace is particular. They don't, they don't really talk about that much. They want to, they at some level, either say that God does not or would not do certain things out of his sovereignty because they would think they would make him look bad, make him look harsh. Uh, some people would say, when we talk about our God, we'd say, your God's a monster. I've had, I've had people, I've had relatives tell me that. So to, when you get that response, some people, when they get that response, they'll want to bridge the gap and soften his sovereignty at the same time, they will crank up the abilities of man. You've got to do them both. And, you know, they'll, they'll somehow allow some type of a free will. They'll allow conditions some way. And these people, seemingly, it's apparent that they are ashamed of the only true God. All right, so I'm going to throw out some, some initial questions here. Um, First of all, just is God sovereign? So far, we're in part four. First three parts, I think every one we've looked at verses that, that clearly show. And we're gonna we're gonna dig deeper and we're gonna prove this even more that He is sovereign, so that we will be put in a corner, so to speak, and be shut up to the fact that He is sovereign. And we will be shut up to the only thing that is left is mercy. And we can define mercy too as an unobligated sovereign attribute of God that he exercises towards his people. People want to make mercy obligated and they destroy the word. They get rid of the definition when they do that. So God is, and we're going to look at some verses that, that uh, I'm not just going to say God's sovereign, we've already proved it. We're going to look at some verses here in a minute. So after that, is God's sovereignty one of God's essential character attributes? Can, can you take that one away? Can you toss that out and say, we've reduced God to make him more commercially accepted, you know, um, more palatable for people to deal with? It is an essential attribute of God. And then, to what extent is he sovereign? You know, that, that is a, there's various views on that that people have. You go to different churches and denominations, and you ask them. Everybody would probably say, yeah, he's sovereign. And, but the different degrees of how far that goes would be the difference uh, in different denominations, probably. So usually we cover this in three basic areas, creation, providence, and salvation. So let's um, just fly through these pretty quick and maybe spend more time on certain areas than others. Creation. Before we just talk about creation by itself, I want to ask, was there a purpose that God had in his creation before he created most people don't even think about that. If you say yes, then would that purpose be a sovereign purpose? 
you want to say, well, first of all, he didn't seek counsel from created beings, angels. I believe angels were created before the world was created. There was some stuff going on, I think, before the world was created that angels were involved in. He didn't go to angels and gather up the legion of angels and says, you know, let me run this by you. What do you think about this? And maybe there's a, you know, a democracy going on. Let's vote on it. He didn't do that. We know he didn't do it with men. Man was not created. That's what we talked about earlier when we said predestination of election is, is before the foundation of the world so man can't get his hands in it and make it a salvation of works. These things were done before time so that the purpose of God according to election might stand, Romans 9.11. Besides that, it's an election of grace. We can't have man's hands in it and it'll become an election of works. So he didn't seek any counsel from anybody in reference to this purpose to create. We know that Christ created. I'll quote, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 45. And I'll quote Colossians 1.16, it's one of my favorites. It says, all things were created by him, speaking of the context is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. All things were created by him and for him. So it's not like he created and said, okay, guys, it's all yours. It was for him. It was for him that matched the counsel before time, the purpose before time. The creation matched that purpose. And for him also the intent of this creation. What is it for? What am I going to do with it? Why am I doing it? How am I doing it? All these things were in reference. It's Christ's. It's all his. Isaiah 45, look at verse 12. I have made the earth, and I have created man on it. I with my hands have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. This is, this is God in his word making a statement using some anthropomorphic terms, uh, human language so that we can uh, understand. I mean, God doesn't have hands. I'm talking about stretching these things. He's saying that so we can understand he did it. He performed it. It's an action that he did. We know that Christ spoke these things into existence, right? Look at verse 18. He talks some more about this creation. For so says Jehovah, the creator of heavens. He is God performing, or I'm sorry, forming the earth and making it. He makes it stand, not creating it empty, but forming it to be inhabited. I am Jehovah and there is no other. I can't hardly get enough of that where he keeps doing that. He says, you know, I'm God and there's none else. He keeps bringing it down to he's the exclusive one. This is Christ talking here. So he has, and you start to see some of these verses blend. It's talking about providence in some of these verses here. It's talking about he's, he's running it. He does things with it. So let's move on to Providence. Now, the, the supposed atheist, the one that thinks he's an atheist, who, who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, he's lying to himself. He doesn't even believe in God, much less creation. He believes in the humanistic idea of some other way that the wor world was formed. Suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He's lying to himself. Providence. Secondly, God is... First, he's sovereign in creation. And he is sovereign in providence. Now, we're going to, throughout the series, we'll probably bring some of these things back. 
the longer that I look at this, the bigger it grows, and it's just, it's too late. It's all mixed up. You know, we can't, I can't have things perfect, all the things chronologically perfect. And it's probably good to keep it mixed up. Because as we go through, we want to continue to see everything. There's nothing wrong with that. And yes, I'm going to forget some stuff. And if we live another 10 or 11 years, we'll maybe do this again. Providence. In other words, the control of all things and events and people. I want to quote this one. You already know it. We've looked at it several times. The idea that Christ, he runs everything that he created. In uh, Hebrews 1, 3, it says, who is the bright and shining splendor of his glory. Talking about Christ is the splendor of the Father's glory and his express image and essence upholding all things by the word of his power. He not only created them, he keeps everything intact, he runs things, everything is in his order. He's controlling all things, nothing surprises him. So we've got character attributes involved. We've got power going in there. We've got... um, you know, wisdom there, we've got knowledge, we've got his unchangeability that's matching his purpose. There's all kind of character attributes going on all at the same time. And this is this is easy for God to do. This is not, he, he's not sweating, he's not wringing his hands, he's not afraid, he doesn't mess up and have to do a plan B. It's all matches harmoniously with his counsel and his purpose from the foundation of the world. We might look at it and we bring it to our, our belly and we're just trying to like be sovereign ourselves and control it and we have anxiety. What's going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen. It's not necessarily our business. God has purposed all these things and he told us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and don't worry about these little things. I'm feeding the birds. I'm taking care of the grass. You're more important than the birds. Uh, PETA, believe it or not, animal rights activists. People are more important than animals. God said, if you don't believe it, take it up with God. In the Old Testament, (laughs) don't get me going on that, he slaughtered animals to show Christ. Millions over the years, gallons of blood, to show Christ. So he controls all things. He controls earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes, tsunamis, uh, the sunny days. You know, when you go on vacation and you might look uh, maybe at the ocean, the beach, you might go to... uh, the mountains, and look at the mountains, and you just knocked out by it. God created that with ease. He did all these things that look positive to us, and the things that look negative to us. The, the blizzards. I'm not craving a snow blizzard. I don't want anything. I don't want any part of it. Rob couldn't make it last week because there was ice. Uh, I don't. I don't like ice. You know. I don't like it on the roads. I don't like it on the. Every time it's uh, on the electric wires, I'm thinking we're going to lose power and my creature comforts are going to be messed up. God controls all that. doesn't take much ice to take the electric down. He controls falling stars, lightning, lightning strikes. I know a guy that got struck by lightning. God did it. He controls it all. Look at Deuteronomy. So anything you can name in nature, really anything you can name, period, God's in control of, but we're in the kind of the idea here of, of things and events. Nature seems to be one. I know the, the, the world, by means of the news media, likes to talk about Mother Nature to try to take credit away from, from God, who is the one that does it. Deuteronomy, what did I say? What chapter? 32. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. So he deals with nature. 
He deals with events. He deals with people. Here this is dealing with people. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am he. He wants to get this clear. He wants to let you know who you're dealing with. Me, he says. God. I'm he. There is no God with me. There's false gods. They don't count. There's none that can be like me. There's none that can match me. There's a false god. It's usually made by some fallen man who, well, you know how that goes. You got to set it up, pick it up, move it, tell it what to do. Then you're God, right? That, that's what's going on here. There's none beside me. <clears throat> There's none with me. He says this, and most people don't know that this verse exists. And there's, there's repetitive verses like this throughout the Old Testament. And, and when they do see that it exists, they, they don't like it. He says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is no one to deliver out of my hand. You know, you can't stop me. This is who I am. I have the right to do this. I do do this. Can't do anything about it. I'm God. This is the way God operates. False gods don't operate this way because they can't do this, what I'm talking about. They, false gods can't make anything alive. Maybe they were the false gods in the, that some of the pagans had in the skies that had to do with the weather, and maybe somebody got struck by lightning and killed. God says, no, I do that. I do that, and I do it with a purpose. I wound and I heal. Everybody been anybody ever been wounded? I think Kim had a wreck one time. wasn't fun. Hit a semi, didn't you, or something like that? Yeah. Some of us have been in wrecks. Um, some of us have um, been cut, been injured. Um, different things like that. God is running all that. Anybody ever had a kidney stone? Anybody ever hurt their back? Yeah, some people's hurting their back recently. Yeah. Anybody have flu recently? And God's running all that. And when you're in the middle of it, you're thinking, you know, why me? <laughs> but uh, God has his purpose, and we know that all things work together for them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Look at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 5. God is sovereign over providence. He controls all things. He has the divine right to do this. Psalm 45, 5. I am Jehovah. This is uh, the modern King James. And there is none else, no God besides me. I clothed you. Though you have not known me, that they may know that from the rising of the sun and the sunset, that there is none beside me. I am Jehovah and there is none else. Seems to be kind of redundant on that, right? Do we see the character attribute of God's jealousy in place here? He wants people to know that he should get credit for these things going on, right? And people, humans might read this and say, man, he thinks a lot of himself, doesn't he? Well, I mean, there's some commands too. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't even make an image. To think you're trying to aid yourself in worship, don't even do that because it's substandard. I'm God and there's none else. The one little picture of Jesus you're trying to do to try to represent so you can remember me by? No. I'm God and there's those pictures? No, there's none else. It goes on in verse 7. Forming the light and creating darkness. See, I told you a couple weeks ago that he created darkness. Remember that? Some people think that 
light, or how's, how's it go, that darkness is the absolute light. He created darkness. In other words, before he created, there was nothing. He created darkness. Making peace and creating evil, I, Jehovah, do all these things. Drop down from above, O ye heavens, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let salvation bear fruit and let righteousness spring up together. I, Jehovah, have created it. You're getting a little bit of gospel stuff there, right? He's in control of all things and he's saying, especially right here, the issue of, is righteousness and I'm controlling righteousness there will be an establishment of righteousness and this is the main thing. All these things providentially are only bringing us to the cross, right? Well, people don't like that in verse nine. And he says, pronounces a woe. Woe to him who fights with the one who formed him. The potsherd among the potsherds of the earth Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work, he has no hands. This is, this is people's reaction to the potter who's in charge. Mere vessels of clay, subordinates, who are so in love with their will and their way of thinking, whose thoughts are not God's thoughts, are always protesting. And their natural response is, what are you doing? As if he does not have the right to do what he's doing. This is what this text is talking about here. It's talking about the sovereign God. He has the right to do it. And you know what? The implications are, hey, in the warning, don't reply to God about his right of being sovereign. He's God and you're not. That's what sovereignty is, basically, right? He's God and you're not. How many people have you talked to that have not warmed up to that idea? Because they still think they have some type of rights. You talk to some, I mean, I, years ago I hung out with a bunch of patriots. They talked about uh, constitutionality and, and, and these different sovereign constitutional rights. And rights are God-given rights. You bring it to salvation, oh, it's a different story. It's a different story with the sovereign God who gives you the authority or the right to believe on his son, John 1, 12. Which we're born, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. So salvation, we talked about providence, talked about creation, talked about providence, salvation. We already looked at the Ephesians text. We have, you know, four weeks in a row and we're going to get back to it sometime, but go to Romans 9. And when we don't get too excited here. We're talking about Romans 9. We're not going to dive head first and camp out a whole message or two this time. We're going to, we're planning on doing that. But just to look at this point here that God is sovereign in salvation. Now this is the most offensive out of, out of creation, providence, and salvation. Salvation is the most offensive. Right? God is a gentleman and he will not touch your free will. You ever heard that one? He's a gentleman. Verse 11. Remember 911. Romans 9:11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, why does he set it up this way in the timing? He's talking about God setting his affection and choice on one of these twins that is in the womb. You've got Jacob and Esau in the womb at the same time. They were from this nation that was used in the Old Testament that was a chosen nation. And out of these two that were from this favored nation, he divides the womb and gets more particular. And he does it before they're born. 
it's not like God made the choice like right before conception. This choice goes back to the same place that all the other choices go to before the foundation of the world. So don't be don't be fooled here like well elections moved like right before conception. It's not it's not saying that. The second part here proves that. But that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That that takes us back there like we were talking about. So this proves here why it was done when it was done so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Notice this further. Not of works, but of him who calls. God, in other words. It's God's purpose. We clearly saw that in Ephesians four weeks in a row when we read the introductory text. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written in the Old Testament. It was Malachi, if I remember correctly. We'll look at that deeper, longer, later. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Paul anticipates an objection. What shall we say then to to that, what we just talked about? And the question comes up, is there unrighteousness with God? That's a typical humanistic response. Unfair. It's unfair, in other words. Paul here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, let it not be, or God forbid. For, or because, he said to Moses, verse 15, this is why he asserts his divine sovereignty here, his right, his divine right as sovereign to sovereignly act. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, mercy and compassion is not obligated. It's up to me. I am the decider, and it is according to my will and my purpose. This is probably the clearest in the whole scripture of saying that God is sovereign and he has the divine right to either give or withhold mercy and compassion. Does he owe anybody mercy? I mean, you've got to back way up and help people out. No. Does he have to give anybody mercy? No. But before the foundation of the world, he had determined to give some mercy. And once he had determined to give some mercy, he compacted and covenanted with the Son to do so, and he gave those people to Christ. Now he's on board, and he is obligated by his faithfulness to give them mercy. And he wants to, and he's willing to, and it's, it's done in his mind. But he's in charge. It's up to him. He doesn't have to do it. This is what grace and mercy is. If you don't understand grace and mercy in those terms, you don't understand grace or mercy. You you believe some kind of new speak. You've created your own dictionary where words don't have meanings. It's your Alice in Wonderland world where up is down and down is up and bitter is sweet and all that. And a, and a boy is a girl if you if you feel like you're a girl. You know, the, you get the idea. Verse 16 just goes further and deeper in redundancy. So then it is not one willing. It has nothing to do with your will. Free will. Squish. Right? Right there. Cuts out free will. And we'll deal with free will in detail so we can understand why free will is not going to work or there's no such thing. It's not the one willing nor the one running, the one, the one going about doing things activity-wise, but of God, the one showing mercy. For because the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
Even for the same purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout the earth. Set him up to take him down. God sovereignly purposed to set him up and take him down. Some of you might look at Pharaoh and say, well, you know, he, he was a bad guy. He was a human being. You're a bad guy. <laughs> you know? You're a bad woman. You're a bad girl or boy. <laughs> You're no different. You're no better than Pharaoh. You're no better than Esau. Jacob was the one that I wouldn't want to be around. That's somebody just, the way he was, just want to slap him. God chose him instead of, I would have, Esau seems like the guy to want to hang around, go deer hunting with or something. Uh, Jacob, <laughs> I don't like those kind of people that Jacob was like in the scripture. I don't hang around those people in my world, but God chose him. And I know there's some things about me <laughs> that if people knew about me would say, I, you're not my kind of person. I understand I'm not my kind of person most of the time, too. That's the problem. <laughs> but we've been shown that. And we don't have the mind of God. And he does things just the very opposite of the way we would do them. We know, uh, at least the way I think, I, I would have just destroyed everybody and just said, forget it. This is a waste of time. But the purpose, remember the overarching purpose of God was to glorify himself in the death of Christ and then bring out of that these, these trophies of grace, these fools like us who are sinners, and he fixes the problem. He justifies them, imputes them with the righteousness of his son, and then he says, look at this. And we say, yeah, I like how that works. That's the greatest thing in the world. Verse 18, uh, therefore... He says the same thing again, and he goes further. He has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will, he hardens. These are the people that he didn't choose. He did something negatively to them, which you're talking about unconditional election, going one step further in unconditionally not electing or not choosing or rejecting, in other words. Remember, it's... It's before they were born, not having done any good or evil. Don't forget about that. And then that's when people really jack up the, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair. You will say to me, verse 19, why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? And these are redundant uh, rhetorical questions. Nobody's resisted his will. They can't. He's God and you're not. Verse 20, but, no, but, O oh man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have power over the clay with the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known just like he did Pharaoh? Endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared, which he had before prepared to glory. Whom he also called not only us of the Jews, but also of the nations, or the Gentiles, or the heathen, or part of the world. Us, in other words, here in this room. I'm way past time. The last point was, is he sovereign in damnation? We just read it. I don't have to read it anymore. We'll get to that toward the end in more detail and look at a lot more verses. Any questions or comments? You know, uh, I went back and listened to some of the old messages and looked at some of my old notes. Um, after I had already decided different things running a different way this series, but um, I think I mentioned this in the first series that 
some of the things we're covering, and I think it's even going to be worse this time, that, that I'm, I'm going slower and I'm covering some more elementary things. And it's a, it's a big conglomeration as we go on. A lot of things are going to be mixing together. And, and if you know a lot of these things or most of these things, be patient. Maybe you'll be reminded because we're not omniscient like God. We have a, or we don't change or we do change, God doesn't change, so we, we have a problem of remembering these things, so if I went over something um, that you already know, maybe you'll connect it up with something else we talk about. So for the sake of people listening on Facebook or Sermon Audio or, or wherever, some of these people are hearing this for the very first time. Uh, i got some people in my workplace that are listening to these things, and some different relatives and stuff they're listening to it that's never ever heard it before. So I didn't want to spring into the more advanced things and leave everybody in the dust. Just everybody be patient as we look at these things. Anything else before we shut it down?